We see that you are never too far from the reaches of God's forgiveness and grace, right? We saw that, and it's through faith and repentance. Last week, we had our RUF campus minister, Tim Price, come and, and look deeply into the importance of repentance. And we see that exhibited in David. But here's what's really interesting. In David or in Nathan, the prophet's confrontation with David, he also reminds him that though we are forgiven and we experience God's grace and mercy, there is a but. But in the midst of sin and brokenness, there are consequences to our sin. That David would actually experience consequences for what he had done. And if I just to remind us from chapter 12 last week, now therefore in verse 10, now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. In other words, that evil would remain and the sword would remain in David's house because of what David had done. And from verse tw- or chapter 12 to today's chapter, verse chapter 15, we actually see Nathan's prophecy come true. The consequences of what David does rings true in his life. In chapters 13 and 14, what happens is that David's two sons fall- falls into deep sin. Amnon, one of his sons, David's sons, has a liking for his sister and sexually assaults his sister. And this makes his other brother, Absalom, so angry that he schemes, plots a way to kill his brother Amnon. And he does. In chapter 14, Absalom, the other brother, schemes and finds a way to murder his brother Amnon. And you begin to see the domino effect, the ripple effects of the consequences of David's sin. Absalom, after murdering his brother Amnon, flees for for a few years out in the wilderness. And finally, because one of David's confidants says, you should bring back your son to Jerusalem, he does. But he never sees his own son for two years. Though he lives in the same city, He lives in a different house, and David the father never sees his son for two years until this portion, where at the end of chapter 14, he finally sees him and begins, Absalom thus begins this conspiracy to be able to overtake David's throne. And that's what we're going to read here, starting in verse 1 through verse 6. Read along with me. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right. But there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were a judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. 
Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Now stop there. Now what we just read at the end of this verse, verse 6, was that Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. How and why? Well, in all of the consequences, right, of David's son sexually assaulting his sister, of his other son murdering his other son. In all of these things, what made it worse was that David did absolutely nothing. He neglected his right as a father and as a king in doing what was right in the midst of all the brokenness and all in the midst of the consequences of sin. He got angry when he heard that Amnon, of what Amnon did to his sister. He got angry that Absalom killed Amnon, but he did absolutely nothing. And he just sat in Jerusalem being negligent as a king and as a father. You see, what we see unfold and what we just read in these six verses is that we are, we are primed to see David's neglect over his people. Whether it was his children or whether it was his nation, he was neglectful in his roles that God had called him to. His son Absalom had planned this coup and a very good one. Absalom was skilled and patient and good. And actually in chapter 14, they describe him as this very good-looking dude with long flowing hair. And so he used not only his good looks, but he used his, his smarts to be able to set up what was this scheme for four years to be able to overtake David, his father's kingdom. And we begin to see that. How? Well, he conjures up and cultivates this image of him, right? We, what we hear is that he takes chariots and horses and these 50 men. Why? Because he's just a prince. But in taking horses and chariots, he begins to look like in his image of one as a king. But not only that, he cultivates this reputation for knowing and caring for the people's needs. He sits at the gate early in the morning every day. And as people from Israel begin to come to the kingdom to be able to file these formal complaints and give these cases over to the king, Absalom is there. And as a good politician would do, he listens to their requests, their complaints, their cases, and says, oh, if I were king, I would give you justice. And no complaint, no case was ever a bad one, right? Because there was nothing at risk for him. As a good politician, you could say, oh, if I were president, if I were on the Senate, or if I was in the House, I would do all of these things. And this is exactly what Absalom does. He says that I would be a better judge. I would bring justice to your cases. Where you feel injustice, I'll make it right. And this is what Absalom does. But what we didn't read at, toward, right after verse 6 is that he actually goes over to Hebron, his hometown where he grew up, and he gathers like 200 or so people, and he throws this crazy massive banquet. And it begins his actual campaign to say that I am king. And they spread the word throughout all of Israel and throughout Jerusalem that Absalom is king at Hebron. Now, 
when you look at this, why I say it's David's neglect is because, yes, Absalom is the one that conspires. He's the one who schemes and brings up this coup to overtake David's throne. But why? It's because of David the king's negligence in his role to enact justice and mercy for the people of Israel. Do you remember way back when, like chapter 8 in 2 Samuel? What do we read about David? David administered justice and righteousness and equity to all the people of Israel. Do you remember that? In this brief moment, we saw God use David to be able to bring justice and righteousness and expand God's kingdom throughout Israel. But here we see David at fault with the sins that he had committed and the consequences of his sin, of his dysfunctional and broken family. He sits at the throne doing nothing. And Absalom takes advantage of this. Absalom knows, and he's smart, and he says, I'm going to fill this vacuum of justice and be able to be one who looks like, not only looks like, but acts like the king. All because of David's negligence. One commentator said it this way, So even though David's failure in matters of justice may not be the origin of Absalom's plot to become king, it certainly provided the setting in which it could develop self-justifying and righteous reasons for carrying it out. But it wasn't just as king. David was also negligent as a father. I alluded to that here. But now it doesn't explain why. But remember, David doesn't see his own son for two years, though he lived in the same city. When all of this brokenness and evil and wickedness was happening, David does nothing as a dad, not just as a king. And can you imagine? I mean, they don't, the Bible never explains why he doesn't do anything as a father. But me, my own human condition and my human experience as a father, I can imagine all the shame and the guilt and the condemnation I would feel in being able to see that it's because of my own wickedness, my own brokenness, my own actions that has brought the dysfunction and the pain and the suffering of my own family. And it makes him so broken and so paralyzed that he does nothing as a father. You see, what you see here is the absolute negligence of David as a father, as a king, in the different roles that God has called him to play. And yet he's completely unfaithful and negligent. And Nathan, the prophet's prophecy, comes true that the sword will always remain in David's house. Well, what does David do about that? Seems like everything Absalom had planned to overthrow his dad is coming to fruition. So does David fight back? Well, no, he flees. Read starting in verse 13. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. 
So the king went out and all his household after him. And the king left 10 concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him. And they halted at the last house. Now stop there. This is now going to be the second time David is in exile. Remember in 1 Samuel last fall, we saw David flee. Why? Into the wilderness. Because King Saul wanted to kill him. But this time, it's not some other king. It's his own son that at best wants to just overthrow him as king, but at worst wants to murder him and kill him. And what does David do? He goes into the wilderness and flees, and he lives a a life of exile once again. And what I want us to feel in this moment in David's life is that there can't be a darker time for David. This is probably the lowest moment and point in his life. Not the 12 years where King Saul wanted to kill him and murder him. But here, why? Because he wasn't fleeing from his own throne. But it was his own son that wanted to kill him. Why? Because of the consequences and the actions of his own sin. And his own brokenness of what he did to Bathsheba. What he did to Uriah. And now all of this comes down to him and it's so weighty and so difficult. And if he's like any parent, when you see all the dysfunction and all the brokenness in your own home, there's this insurmountable, overwhelming amount of guilt, shame, and condemnation that he must have put upon himself. And in this dark moment in his life, when he has to flee and be and live a life of exile once again, what I want us to see is that even in the lowest, darkest, darkest moment of his life, God gives him a glimmer of light and hope. Despite his negligence, despite the consequences of his sin, and despite his own actions of sin, God still gives him grace and is plentiful. Do you feel like that even in your own moments of be feeling like you're in exile? Where you feel like you are in the darkness? Well, here what I want us to see is that God's grace is plentiful. And he shows David a ray, a glimmer of hope, even when things seem so, so grave and dark. Now, we're not going to read the rest of this chapter But you can go home and read the rest of chapter 15. But one way in which God gives him this grace and mercy is through this man named Ittai the Gittite. Great name, right? Ittai the Gittite. He's this mercenary and he's a foreigner from Philistine, from the city of Gath. Now, Gath, do you remember who came from Gath? It was Goliath, yep. Goliath came from Gath. And this man has joined Israel's army. And he's one of their soldiers, and he's going out with David, and David sees him, and now we don't know how he recognizes him, but he goes, why are you coming with me? You're a foreigner. You're from Philistine. Stay back. Why would you want to deal with all the mess and the darkness that I'm bringing? Stay in Jerusalem with Absalom, the king who has now taken over. Don't come with me. But do you know what Ittai says? In verse 21, this is what Ittai says. By the life of Yahweh and by the life of my Lord the King, wherever my Lord the King is, whether it means death or life, there your servant will be. 
What a gift. In a moment of exile and fleeing, in the darkness of his heart and life, this foreigner who has no business joining David says, for life or death, I will join you because you are the servant, my Lord, the King. God gives him this beautiful gift of someone who's willing to follow him and be a ray of light and hope when David is in a moment of darkness. But there's another way in which we see this. And this is actually, this is what Dale Davis, the commentator, says about Ittai. He says, Ittai is an island of fidelity in a sea of treachery. The irony is clear. David's own son was conspiring against him while this stranger who owed him nothing was risking everything in his cause. What a beautiful ray of hope in the darkest, lowest point of David's life. But not only that, we see God give him another ray of light and hope because as they're fleeing and going into exile, guess what happens? All the priests recognize David as God's king. So they all go with him. But guess what they want to bring with with them? The Ark of the Covenant. Now we know this Ark of the Covenant which represents God's presence, right? It's a visible representation of God's presence for them. But do you know what, what happened in 1 Samuel? They tried to use the Ark of the Covenant as this lucky rabbit's foot. If they just brought it into battle, they thought, well, God will surely declare us victorious. But they get decimated, right? And they learn that you can't treat God like a lucky rabbit's foot. And here, here's what's interesting. David, in this darkest moment of his life, is beginning to also learn of who God is. Have you ever experienced that? That in your dark moments, that the Holy Spirit, on this Pentecost Sunday especially, the Holy Spirit convicts and reminds us of God's character and his love and his provision and his presence. Now look at what David says to the priests in verse 25 and 26. Take the ark of God back to the city. If I find grace in Yahweh's eyes, he shall bring me back and allow me to see both this, it, and his residence. But if he says, I do not delight in you, here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him. In other words, what David is saying is his restoration, should there be such, does not depend on whether we have Yahweh's furniture, but it's on whether he has Yahweh's favor. It all rests on God's grace. In the darkest moment of his life, Something clicks. It's the Spirit of God that reminds him it's all about God's grace. Dale Davis, the same commentator, says, It's no gimmicks, no superstitions, no rabbit foot religion, no conning God by pilfering the ark. I must not use God, but submit to him, and he will do as he pleases, even if it means death, even if it means being overthrown, even if it means these are the consequences of his sin. You see, even in such darkness and pain, David is able to see God's grace and his provision through Ittai and learning to trust and submit to God when so much is uncertain, even his own life. This is what it means to be able to understand that God gives us his grace even when we are negligent, even when we have sinned, even when we experience the consequences of his sin. God's grace abounds in our lives over and over again. 
last weekend, woo, last weekend, I wasn't here because I had the opportunity, Hannah and I got to go to one of our former seminarians' ordination services. Uh, some of you might remember him. His name is Sean Dean. And it was such, an, uh, such a joy to be able to be at his ordination service because when he came to seminary, he had all of these hopes to be able to be an amazing pastor, to be able to be used by God. He came to seminary married with all the hopes of becoming uh, a pastor. But during his seminary years, and as he was leaving seminary, he was now divorced. And he was angry at God and was unsure about whether he would ever become a pastor. But it was in his own exile, in the midst of the darkest times, that he was able to see glimmers of hope and light and grace. His brothers at the ordination service were so thankful. I mean, they kept, they kept saying how thankful they were that Hannah and I were there because our church played such an important role in the darkest times of his life. It was our elders who prayed with him and for him and listened and lamented with him and grieved with him and cried with him. It was his community group that helped him move out all of his belongings. And when there were belongings that he, it was too painful to go back into that apartment because it brought up so many memories and pain, painful moments, that it was the community group, you guys, who went into that apartment building and cleaned that place for Sean. And as I reflected on that moment and those times where in the moment of his darkest times and of his exile, it was these moments where he was able to now look back and be thankful because he was reminded of God's provision, of God's grace and his sustenance in his life. And it was such a beautiful moment for me to be able to not only see him get ordained, but be able to receive the benediction from Sean to see how God had been faithful in his life. But it was because God used us and the church and you individuals to be able to be a ray of light and hope. And that's what we see here this morning. It's in the midst of our brokenness that God in his beautiful ways will show us his love and grace. And we need to ask the Spirit to open up our eyes to see that. And one way we do that is here at the table this morning. What you see here is Jesus being exiled. You see Jesus weeping and lamenting the fact that he would be crucified and suffer and die, not because of his own sin, but because of our sin and our brokenness and our doing. And as he's exiled, he suffers and dies so that we would never have to experience condemnation or shame or guilt, but it's placed on Christ, and we get to experience the righteousness and the justice and the love and mercy of our Savior. That's for us, that even in the midst of the darkest moments of your life, we can at least say, if there's nothing else that you can think of, Jesus' love is so profound that he came for me and was willing to bear the weight of my pain, my exile, my suffering, so that I would be able to understand that this is temporary, that one day I will be able to 
dine and sup at the table with my Savior. There will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more exile. We'll be able to return to the home that God has made for us and be able to celebrate forever. That is ours. And if that's all you got, cling to that this morning. Eat, drink, and remember, He sustains you even in the moments of exile. Let's pray.